0: Coming to you live from New York, this is First Move, and here is what you need to know. Stocks falter as Gilead halts a coronavirus treatment trial. Restrictions eased as Georgia pulls ahead to reopen the U.S. economy. But at what cost? And health warning. The makers of Lysol tell people not to ingest disinfectant after President Donald Trump's comments. It is Friday. I'm Zane Asher, in for my colleague Julia Chatterley, and this is First Move. All right, welcome to First Move. So good to have you with us on this Friday. Lots to get through uh, today as we wrap up yet another challenging week for global markets, filled with new evidence that COVID 19 is, of course, taking a huge toll on global economies. US futures, let's take a look here, are on track for a higher open right now. Dow futures are up 200 points or so. But stocks, of course, have been volatile amid concern that a promising treatment for COVID 19 is actually not helping patients. In recent trials, we'll take a look at the setback for Gilead Sciences in just a moment with our uh, Christine Romans, who is standing by. Let's take a look at what European stocks are doing. A new study says that German GDP is set to fall more than 8% this year. A closely watched index of German business sentiment plunged to its lowest levels on record, too. Asian stocks finish a session lower as well. Let's get right to the drivers now on uh, Gilead. Documents published by the WHO suggested that the company's antiviral drug did not help patients in a clinical trial. Gilead says the study ended early because of low enrollment and that the WHO actually published their conclusions far too soon. Let's bring in Christine Romans, who joins us live now. So, Christine, there was actually no concrete improvement in COVID-19 patients. But the fact remains that economic recovery here is only going to be dependent on finding a treatment on a vaccine that works. Hence the stock market reaction.
1: And this is a reminder, there's no magic pill right now, and there's no switch for opening the economy, and there's no magic pill or treatment approved, really, to fight this virus yet. So this is about science and letting the science uh, do what it does best and have these clinical trials and different phases of clinical clinical trials and, and try to get some results here. Now, Gilead points out that they do have other uh, stage three clinical, tri- clinical trials going on that are more fully um, enrolled. This was just 237 uh, patients, so not... A Big enough sample group to come to any conclusions. Uh, Yet, that's where we are here. It takes a long time to find treatments, both in the vaccine and both in therapeutics. And and that's where we are, a reminder to markets. Although they're bouncing back here this morning, it looks like, uh, but still a reminder we have a a long way to go.
0: Yeah, let's talk about uh, stimulus money because the House just approved $484 billion. Uh, For for small businesses, for small companies that are really dependent on this money. What are the guidelines in place to make sure that public companies with access to capital markets don't end up getting the money first? So Congress wrote it this way, right? I mean, the, the
1: problem here is that when you want to get the money out the door quickly, you don't put a lot of strings on it. And that meant that these big public companies were able to tap into some of this money. And, and, and they got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of this money. Now, some have given it back. And the Treasury Department has said, uh, shame on you. Don't go after this money if you have other access to capital uh, and that we will come after it for you. So there's that, I guess, you know, public shaming warning here. In this money, in this $310 billion that is specifically for small businesses, um, there is a $60 billion carved out that's supposed to go uh, directly to very small community-based lenders. And so these are the kinds of lenders that are tied into community development pipelines that are just not connected to the rest of the the banking infrastructure. So that should help get the money to different corners of Main Street. But there's some real concerns, Zane. I have some real concerns that there's not enough money in here to make everyone whole. I mean, we had trillions of dollars of of payrolls for small businesses um, in February. And now all of a sudden we've got, you know, a few billions, hundreds of billions to try to to fill that hole. Um, This is going to run out really quickly. Right. And I'm not sure they have the infrastructure to really spread it out far and wide.
0: Right. Because that $350 billion uh, ran out last week. And who knows when this will run out, obviously, very soon. Christine Romans, live for us there. Thank you so much. The governor of the U.S. state of Georgia is moving ahead with an aggressive plan to reopen the state. Non-essential businesses, including salons and tattoo parlors, will be allowed to uh, restart. Here's our Martin Savage with more.
2: Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's plan to relax some social distancing efforts begins this morning. Owners of barbershops, hair and nail salons, bowling alleys, gyms, and massage parlors can reopen their stores. And next Monday, restaurants and theaters can do the same. Kemp defending his move to allow some sectors of his state to resume business, tweeting, My team has worked closely with the Trump administration, and our decisions and direction are informed by data and public health recommendations. This, as President Trump tosses out unscientific ideas from the White House podium. Last night, raising the bizarre notion of using household cleaners as a possible treatment for coronavirus patients.
3: And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that Uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning?
2: But health experts agree there is no scientific merit for that suggestion.
4: They also said it, you know, it needs to be studied. Actually, it doesn't. I mean, we, we, we know the answer to this one. The idea that we would do a trial of some sort and inject some people with disinfectant and some people not and see what happens. I mean, as you point out, I think, I think everybody would know that that would be dangerous and, and counterproductive and, and not at all moving us in the right direction
2: meantime illinois extending their stay-at-home orders through may 30th with an added requirement wearing face coverings in public if a six-foot distance can't be maintained
4: we need to keep going a little while longer to finish the job
2: california's governor asking residents pressing to end social distancing efforts to look at the facts we're not out of the woods yet i know there's deep desire people are making calls on an hourly
4: basis saying it's time to open back up Consider the deadliest day in the state of California
2: in the last 24 hours, 8.5% increase in the total number of deaths. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. needs to ramp up both the number and capacity to perform tests in order to safely reopen parts of the country. I am not overly confident right now at all that we have what it takes to do that. We're getting better and better at it as the weeks go by. But we are not in a situation where we say we're exactly where we want to be with regard to testing. But according to Trump.
3: No, I don't agree with him on that. No, I think we're doing a great job on testing. I don't agree. If he said that, I don't agree with him.
2: Yet, many state leaders say there is much work to be done.
5: The fact as a nation we weren't ready for this as a testing matter. We've cobbled together now up to 86 different sites, but we're still not there yet.
0: And at his White House briefing on Thursday, the U.S. President Raise false ideas on how to get rid of the virus. I want you to listen uh, to this.
3: Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute and is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning?
0: Now, there are obviously strong warnings against what he's suggestion, uh, suggesting. The maker of Lysol and Dettol released a statement. You can read it on your screen. It says, we must be clear that under no circumstance should our disinfectant products be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. John Harwood joins us live now from uh, Washington. So bizarrely, the president there intimating that perhaps ingesting disinfectant might be one way of tackling the coronavirus. Has he clarified what he meant by that, John?
4: No, he hasn't. uh, And his aides have tried to dance around it. But uh, I gotta tell you, this is put into sharp relief, saying an issue that we've all been dancing around for the last three years, because the president has said, bizarre things for a very long time. And the idea that he's not all there, that uh, he's not in uh, uh, connection with reality, uh, is something that we uh, have had difficulty talking about. This put that into sharp relief because the idea of people ingesting uh, uh, disinfectant, Lysol, Clorox, whatever, is straight up a lunatic idea. And one of the president's former military aides on Twitter this morning was saying, uh, uh, in this White House, you can't escape the crazy. And that is an un- uncomfortable idea for anyone contemplating the idea that uh, President Trump is the leader of our war against coronavirus right now.
0: Is there any issue more important to President Trump's reelection than of course his handling of this pandemic?
4: No, uh, and the president's in trouble in his reelection. Uh, We've seen polls lately that the initial surge he got in public support rallying around him has faded. He's trailing in uh, most of the key battleground states. He's trailing nationally. Uh, And what's happened is the coronavirus pandemic, because of the public health catastrophe and the economic catastrophe, it has wiped out what the president thought uh, was going to be the uh, key to his reelection, and that is a strong American economy. It's not strong anymore. Um, and he is now obsessed with trying to escape blame, uh, provide hope for people, even with crazy ideas like uh, ingesting a disinfectant. And um, uh, it simply uh, demonstrates the urgency that he feels, the desperation he feels about his predicament that he would stand up there and offer of uh, that, and also that his aides, uh, because they're concerned about setting him off and trying to work and battle the coronavirus around his the unusual nature of his personality and how his mind works, that they have to be very uh, delicate in how they handle it. You could see the video of Deborah Burks, his uh, coordinator of the co- coronavirus uh, uh, campaign, uh, squirming uncomfortably. You saw his FDA commissioner, uh, Stephen Hahn, on our air last night. Uh, trying to uh, very diplomatically say maybe this isn't a good idea. Very, very tough situation.
0: So then to your point, is it hurting him? Or I should say, how much is it hurting him starring in these daily press conferences? Some say that perhaps the president should uh, have a lower profile at this time.
4: Certainly, Republicans are saying that and some White House aides believe that. Um, but the president is going to do what he wants to do. He enjoys being in front of a camera every day. Uh, he is uh, his, he's in very difficult shape for reelection. He's a decided underdog at this point. Is that because of the briefings, or would that be uh, happening even if there were no briefings? We don't really know the answer, but we certainly know that last night's briefing, again, drew into uh, very sharp focus the idea that the president is throwing out ideas from time to time that are just nuts.
0: All right, John Howard, live for us there. Thank you so much. As American businesses anxiously await the moment they can safely reopen, many are closely watching how Wuhan, the original epicenter of the virus, works to get back to normal. Its strict lockdown lasted for 76 days. And as our CNN's David Culver reports, some small businesses are struggling to survive.
6: Wuhan's mild spring weather luring people outside. They do not need much convincing after enduring the most extreme of lockdowns. CNN found folks enjoying the company of neighbors or soaking in the stillness, all the while still wearing face masks. A reminder that the original epicenter of the novel coronavirus outbreak is not in the clear. Two weeks after Wuhan lifted its lockdown, a drive through commercial streets shows many storefronts still shuttered. The shop's staying open, finding a new way to serve customers. You can only go up until the box up front. They've got a little table set up. You order with somebody who either comes to the door or you can do it through an app. The idea is you are not to go in to the store. All of this still open business, but also keep a social distance. But for some small business owners, there is no reopening in sight. For private businesses like us, there's almost no subsidies. We talked with Mr. Wong. CNN agreed not to use his full name, as he wanted to avoid any trouble with local officials. After three months of sitting closed, the 35-year-old restaurant owner is struggling with rent. If a government relief check arrives, he says the assistance will likely come too late, especially if there's another spike in infections here. Considering the possibility of a second wave, very likely, we will leave this business and find another job." Mr. Wong opened up about the mental health struggles of living under lockdown, sealed inside his home. I was actually very scared at that time. When I saw the news that the pandemic was gradually under control, I felt less nervous. When I got bored at home, I just watched TV, I played on my phone and slept. And yet Mr. Wong like many across the world, also had to deal with news that three of his loved ones contracted the virus, one of his extended family members passing away. Of course, we were very sad. We couldn't see him for the last time when he died or even give him a farewell ceremony. It was a big regret in our heart. We will go to his grave after the pandemic to hold a simple ceremony for him. Likely thousands of similarly delayed remembrances to take place here in Wuhan over the weeks ahead as others cautiously move forward with living. These, the faces of those who endured a harsh lockdown, now navigating their way into an uncertain future. And here we are more than three months after the lockdown initially took effect. And you can tell there that folks are still very hesitant to walk back into life as it was prior to the lockdown. And businesses, the ones that will reopen, will do so, as you see, with very different modes of how they operate. And the ones that remain closed, including fitness centers and cinemas, will be doing so until they get formal approval to reopen. And even once they reopen, many of them are still concerned that the customers will be very reluctant to come back, concerned that they will face that added exposure ahead of what could potentially be a second wave of this outbreak. David Culver, CNN, Wuhan, China.
0: All right, still to come here, on first move as the Georgia governor decides to reopen the U.S. state. We speak to one of the mayors who has expressed skepticism over the timing. And coronavirus and an economic downturn hitting Africa at the same time. We'll discuss how the continent is coping. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Futures are still pointing to a higher Wall Street open. All this after a flat close on Thursday. Dow futures up about 192 points. We've got 10 minutes until the opening bell. Uh, Trading was volatile Thursday amid concern that a COVID-19 treatment from Gilead Sciences is showing disappointing results early on. Intel is lower in pre-market trading. First quarter results... The chip-making giant was solid, but its outlook for the current quarter came in below estimates. And Intel is pulling guidance for the rest of the year, as a lot of companies are doing. Let's return now to one of our top stories, the reopening of the U.S. state of Georgia. A source told CNN that President Trump had been privately pleased with the plan and called Governor Brian Kemp on Tuesday uh, night to express that. But publicly on Thursday, he had a very different reaction. I want you to listen to this.
3: I said, you're not in the guidelines, but I'm letting you make your own decision. But I want people to be safe. And I don't want this thing to flare up because you're deciding to do something that is not in the guidelines. And I went to Deborah and Dr. Fauci and other people, and they weren't thrilled about it. And I could have stopped them, but I decided, and we all agreed, they got to watch it closely. But if you ask me, am I happy about it? I'm not happy about it. And I'm not happy about Brian Kemp.
0: So you heard the president there saying that he's not happy about it. The governor's decision has baffled many mayors uh, running Georgia's cities and towns. One of them is John Ernst, the mayor of Brookhaven. That's a city with 50,000 residents. He joins us live now via Skype. Mayor Ernst, thank you so much for being with us. So in order to have a state reopen, I think you really need need several things, but especially two things. You need uh, robust testing and you also need clear guidelines on how to protect workers. Georgia has neither of those two things. What are your thoughts?
5: Well, I, that is correct. We we do not have the number of testing needed to uh, to to keep the spread down. Um, we we don't have the uh, the equipment the, the protection of uh, workers, and that's what I'm hearing from my residents, from my business owners, from my restaurateurs who are basically saying, you know, I was told last week to try to open up. I can't source uh, PPEs myself. I can't get masks. I can't get plastic gloves. I can't get Clorox wipes. So you know, there's just a lot of concern out there.
0: So what sort of just explain to our international audience legally, what sort of recourse do you have? If if the governor if Governor Kemp wants to do one thing and you as mayor of Brookhaven decide, you know what? No, I want to keep I keep I want to keep the 50,000 residents in my city safe. I don't want businesses to reopen. What legal recourse do you have?
5: I have no legal recourse. Uh, okay. The governor's order uh, supersedes local jurisdictions and local law, so uh, the governor's order is legally the only thing that can be enforced. I cannot uh, increase the uh, any restrictions. I can't decrease any of the restrictions. Uh, we are, uh, in fact, my local police um, at this point can't enforce the restrictions. Only the state patrol and the sheriff's departments can do so. Um, there's talk that. Shortly, that maybe the police or my local police could do it. So, legally, I have no recourse. The only recourse I have is of speaking up and, and telling people what I think. Um, and people will make the decisions that they make.
0: So, businesses, I mean, realistically, when you think about the worst case scenario, businesses might actually end up in a worse position because they reopen, they expose their workers, more people get sick, cases rise, and then they have to close again. And that prolongs the ordeal. I mean, just walk us through, just for businesses or business owners who might live in your city who are thinking of uh, reopening, what are the consequences?
5: Well, I mean, that, that's the issue. You know, Brookhaven was the first city in the state of Georgia to, uh, to start doing social distancing, to close our restaurants and bars for in-dining operations. Um, and put in a whole bunch of uh, and have a, a, a whole restrictions, basically having our shelter in place. And so we've been out down longer than anyone else has in the entire state by close to two weeks. Um, and so, you know, my citizens have been great. my business owners have been great. people have been take, doing takeout. And now, you know, having these changes of rules, they are, you know, these business owners don't know if they're going to have any business. About 75 percent of my restaurants say they're not going to open up on Monday, that they're going to just wait it out and, and continue doing takeout if they, they were doing takeout. Um, the ones that shut down completely, they're, they're still talking two, three weeks out before they uh, open back up. So um, it's, it's a really catch-22. The fact of the matter is, you know, it's one of those things where you needed to go into uh, uh, social distancing as quick as possible and you do it as long as possible to 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 max to maximize the effectiveness and the spread. And I don't think we're that far off in Georgia necessarily. Um, we don't have the testing, but our, our cases are are coming down. But we're not there yet. We're not within the guidelines. And to reopen uh, could cause us to flare back up to then close back down. So in the end, I believe this is actually kind of worse uh, for could be worse for our economy. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that this does work out. But I have strong suspicions that it's uh, it's going to be very troublesome.
0: Were you given a heads up by uh, the governor about his plans or the fact that he was thinking about reopening the state or did it were you blindsided?
5: Oh, I, all of us were blindsided. Every uh, every mayor was blindsided. People who were on his uh, task force were blindsided. Uh, this came out of the blue. Uh, we had heard rumblings that he was thinking about um you know, just rumors that he's thinking about reopening. I myself thought that would have been May 10th, May 15th. Um, you know, when you reopen, you would you would want a long lead time for those businesses to get the PPEs and such to try to be able to source. Um, but now, you know, uh, and and tr- and have a nice you know orderly transition. But it was seemed to be very very quick, uh, very very aggressive, um, and we just don't know a lot. Uh, no one really knew what was going on.
0: Well, uh, it's certainly uh, a very risky proposition, but the residents of Georgia are in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, John Erst, mayor of Brookhaven, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, how the sudden collapse of oil prices is impacting Africa's largest economy. We'll have a live report with our Eleni Jokos in just a few minutes. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Zane Asher. U.S. stocks are up and running on this last trading day of the week. And as expected, we've got a higher open overall for all the major indices. U.S. stocks are still on track for a losing week overall amid continued concern over the economic damage from COVID-19 across the world. New numbers from the UK show retail sales plunging by the largest amount on record last month. This follows shockingly weak global manufacturing and services sector data released yesterday. Federal Reserve policymakers meet next week to discuss their response to the crisis. Meantime, oil is finishing up its most turbulent turbulent week in history with solid gains. U.S. crude plunged to below zero dollars a barrel for the first time ever. That was a history-making moment. That was on Monday. The plunge in oil prices is hitting Nigeria hard. According to the IMF, the country relies on oil sales for 90% of its foreign exchange earnings and 60% of government revenue. Oil accounts for 9% of Nigeria's GDP. Meantime, the number of coronavirus cases, the number of infected continues to rise in Africa. Eleni Jokos joins us live now from Johannesburg. Uh, So Eleni, I'm originally from Nigeria. You've spent a lot of time um, in that country. When you think about how this country is suffering because of this pandemic, 60% of the country's revenues Comes from oil. On top of that, it is now losing about 35 million US dollars a day because of this pandemic. What hangs in the balance here?
7: Yeah, you know, and it's so funny. Yes, I do go to Nigeria very often, and in fact, the last time I was there, it was in February, and um, I remember just how much optimism there was about 2020, and just how much economic growth people were expecting, and of course, oil prices were pretty stable at that point. And then you fast forward to now, and you're looking at um, a very different um, environment, and what hangs in the balance is, of course, the ability of government to be able to spend its way out of this crisis. If you're talking about wiping out a significant portion of its revenues, like you say, then how much money is there left to really spend and plow into the health sector? How much money will there be for social um, issues that are obviously going to arise uh, because of the pandemic? Now, the numbers in Nigeria are sitting at around 980 cases at the moment with 31 deaths. But the country is currently under lockdown, and that brings uh, so many issues into play. Firstly, you're, you're killing economic growth because you have to, you have to pick lives over uh, the economy. But you're also then embarking on a twin shock, is what the IMF is talking about. Firstly, uh, you've got the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the lockdown, and then you have the oil price volatility shock, which has absolutely rocked the country and its finances. Budgets have to be reworked. Oil majors are coming under pressure. And you and I know the value chain around the oil and gas sector is absolutely enormous. So you're looking at potential job losses there as well. So it's a tough situation right now, Zane. But let me tell you, private sector and government are trying to mobilize to find solutions to the problems that are going to be coming up in the next few months.
0: You know, Nigeria is a country with a huge amount of economic potential. You and I have had many, many conversations about the country's prospects and its future. But it's also a famously unequal society. Income inequality has been a problem in Nigeria for as far back as I can remember. What happens in this scenario to the country's poorest, even just getting food, even just being able to feed your family if you're not working, is in and of itself a miracle?
7: I know. And I mean, it's such a good point to make because, you know, when we go to Nigeria, we obviously spend time with a lot of CEOs and you go to boardrooms and you go to really incredible uh, places and and factories and infrastructure and you see the developments and then you're on the ground and you see the plight of what people are experiencing. um, And then you say, well, there's a huge gap, right? So that is being pronounced. And let me tell you, it's not only a Nigerian problem in terms of the inequalities that are being accentuated. It's everywhere. It's even here in South Africa. I was talking to a government official that is in charge of Lagos State's Sustainable Development Goals yesterday. Today, and she was telling me there are around 10 to 15 million people in Lagos State that are hungry or, or are very close to the poverty line. So now you're asking these people that already were living meal to meal, by the way, to try and earn money daily to survive, to now not work at all. So you're sitting with a social dilemma here. So you've mm-hmm. got to embark on giving out food parcels, which of course we know the government is trying really hard to do and the private mm-hmm. sector and of course the mm-hmm. money that that is around within the private sector in the hands of billionaires that is also flowing to social uh, issues. But you know we cannot also forget the people that are living in the north of the country that are mm-hmm. the heart of the agricultural yeah. sector that are not even receiving mm-hmm. seeds and fertilizer right now. So there's a worry about food insecurity and there's a worry about security in general right now.
0: Yeah, Nigeria really does, at the end of this, have to prioritise diversifying its economy. You think about the fact that it exports crude oil, imports gasoline, then sells it as a loss because it has to subsidise it. You know, those diversification conversations really need to remain front and centre from this point onwards. We have to leave it there. Thank you so much. All right. Turning now to the emergency response in Spain, where there is hope amid the heartache. Hundreds of volunteers are helping, are lending rather, a helping hand to residents who are unsure of their next meal. Let's go now to Scott McQueen, who's live for us in Madrid. Um, Scott, I understand you're seeing people who have never, never in their lives had to rely on a food bank suddenly becoming very familiar with one now.
8: Yeah, and it's important to keep in mind, Zane, that Spain was still recovering from the last financial crisis 12 years ago when the coronavirus came along. So it has forced hundreds of thousands of people already permanently into unemployment. It's forced millions of people to be furloughed and, as you mentioned, forced ordinary working people who have never seen the inside of a food bank to suddenly ask for help. We met some of them when we rode along with the Madrid Fire Department. Inside this kitchen, volunteers are preparing food for Madrid's most needy. The funding comes from World Central Kitchen, the charity started by celebrity chef Jose Andres, better known for its work in the aftermaths of floods, fires, and hurricanes. This is the closest we've lived to a natural disaster, a fractured economy. The consequence is the same, he says. The meals are delivered by the Madrid Fire Department, used to responding to disasters, just not the kind that Spain is facing right now. The coronavirus crisis that's killed well over 21,000 people in Spain has also torched a huge swath of the national economy. For many families, it's reduced their income down to zero. Loaded up with food, the bomberos head out to deliver. Five weeks into the lockdown, the firefighters have gotten familiar with the people they serve many who, until now, had been unfamiliar with the inside of a food bank. Daisy Rivero lives with her autistic son and works full-time at a daycare center. She's been out of work for almost six weeks now. He doesn't understand why we can't leave. I tell him, son, at least we have food now, she says. The last financial crisis sent Spain into a long, painful recession. 12 years later, before COVID-19, It was still finding its economic feet, still struggling with 13% unemployment and one of the highest debt burdens in Europe. Elizabeth Sanchez is a mother of two with a third on the way. Her husband, who works in construction, has been forced to stay home since the lockdown began. it It was already difficult before. Now it's even tougher. I pray to the Lord this ends soon, she says. So far, her prayers have gone unanswered. While Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez has promised the largest stimulus package in Spanish history, he's also promised to extend the lockdown for at least another two weeks. So that lockdown will go on for at least another two weeks, and only beginning in mid-May does the Prime Minister say that the economy will gradually start to reopen. One of the last industries to restart, those Zane, will be tourism, which makes up 12% of Spain's economy.
0: So the state of emergency is going to continue until uh, May 9th. And then, as you said, restrictions are going to ease. The economy is going to slowly reopen. What happens if after that point the virus then starts to spread again? I mean, I I imagine that's got to be a fear right now.
8: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, first, there is a little bit of good news. Today is the very first day that they've seen more recoveries recorded than people actually testing positive for the virus. So there are certainly some good signs. And as you said, they're going to gradually start instituting these uh, or lifting these restrictions starting this Sunday. Kids will be allowed to go out on walks with their parents but as you said there is this real fear of the virus returning and so the next phase of this relies heavily on personal responsibility people taking it upon themselves to make sure that they're socially distancing so that the virus doesn't actually return the government says if that starts to happen they can snap back those restrictions, put them back in place, which obviously is good news for no one considering that this has already gone on for six weeks and will be going on for another two weeks. The economic impact of this, leaving the health part of it aside, the economic part of this alone is massive, Zane.
0: Absolutely right. Thank you. Scott McLean joining us live there from Madrid. All right. Up next, San Francisco ramps up contact tracing as experts warn it will be key to reopening economies. The man leading the city's program gives us the inside story. That's next. Test, track and trace. It's the formula many health experts believe is the key to easing lockdown restrictions. Officials everywhere are racing to ramp up testing, but few have prioritized contact tracing. One of the first American cities to do so is San Francisco, where the mayor unveiled a very ambitious program 10 days ago. Joining me now to explain how it works is the man leading those efforts, uh, George Rutherford, Dr. George Rutherford, I should say, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for being with us. So just walk us through um, how contact tracing works and also the challenges with it. I imagine that once restrictions are eased, every single person who is infected could easily come into contact with over 100 other people before they themselves are even aware.
9: Well, that's a somewhat pessimistic scenario. But let me walk you <laughs> through sorry. it. Just so, so start, start <laughs> with, it's. Uh, this is a program of the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and we at the University of California are uh, merely helping them. Um, the way it works is that when a person's reported with, uh, with COVID-19, their, uh, their information is given to a, a, a contact investigator, works for the city, a case investigator who interviews them and uh, elicits who they've been in contact with. Now during a period of shutdown like this, it's relatively straightforward because it's gonna be household contacts primarily, although we have a number of essential workers who actually go, do go out and, and, uh, and, and work. So they can be coming to contact with people in the workplace. Once we've gotten the names of the contacts, or at least some of the locating information for the contacts, we turn it over to people who've been largely repurposed from uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and from city government uh, within San Francisco who actually make the calls, do the texting, make the contact with uh, people who've been in contact with a patient, arrange for testing if that's appropriate, and then help make dispositions about whether they should go to isolation, quarantine, or be cut loose. The uh, city then follows up through an uh, isolation and quarantine team for people who have been placed in isolation and quarantine, especially those who are, uh, who can't do it, really do it at home And we've been placing, at least for isolation in hotels, making sure they have foods, you know, the kinds of things that people need to um, uh, survive unless they're living in a big house with a big family of people who can take care of them. So that's the kind of rough nuts and bolts of it. The challenge is, Is that at least now for every one case we have almost four contacts named Mm -hmm. so with a thousand cases roughly there are four thousand contacts it takes a half an hour each to get hold of the contacts to walk them through what's going on and to get it all uh, get it all set up so you can see that the uh, person power needs are just enormous for something like this
0: so so there needs to be speed obviously there needs to be testing. Um, and here's another, I apologize for my pessimism, but here's another, another question for you, just in terms of data privacy. Um, how much concern is there out there when it comes to that?
9: Well, this data privacy is obviously a cornerstone of public health, at least as it's practiced in the United States. Uh, we, uh, you know, the data are private. Uh, this is, uh, these are re- diseases that are reportable by law. Contact tracing is a legally sanctioned a- activity. So we're there. Once you start talking about apps, though, we start to push at the edge of, of what's, uh, what's um, of, of privacy concerns. Some uh, countries that are touted or that are held out as exemplars for how well contact tracing has gone are really, I think, in our society would be viewed, viewed as quite intrusive. For instance, in, in one Asian country, when you become a case, your phone is turned over to the National Police Authority, who finds out where you've been. Then the then the national banking authority runs all your credit card records and finds out where you've spent money, and then they set, take your picture and send you up to the surveillance cameras so they can follow where you've been. So I don't think that would fly very well here, but nonetheless, that's that's an example of a successful uh, contact tracing program.
0: I mean, it's it's almost Orwellian, isn't it? Um, when you hear about uh, states uh, like Georgia, so- when you hear about states like Georgia that are you know, reopening in this environment without adequate testing, contact tracing, that sort of thing. Um, As a doctor yourself, as a professor of epidemiology, what are your thoughts on that?
9: It seems uh, somewhat premature, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. I I think you really have to have pretty low levels of transmission and have a very robust contact tracing program in place if you're going to even consider these things. Otherwise, we'll be right back at this again with sheltering in place over and over and over again, which no one wants. And the way to do it is to make sure that we learn the lessons from 1918, 1919, where uh, cities that uh, ended uh, essentially lockdown early had big rebounds and deaths. We have to stay the course. We have to make sure that we can get out the other end and that we have a serious contact tracing program in place along with all the other accoutrements that are needed. Mm And, you know, just ride it out that way.
0: Absolutely. You can't sacrifice uh, the long term for the case of uh, the short term. All right. Dr. George Rutherford, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us. Stay well. Coming up on First Move, why a pet supply retailer is so relevant under stay at home orders. We'll explain why after the break. All right, breaking news just into CNN. A French court has rejected an appeal from Amazon over a ruling that limits deliveries. The court had said Amazon could only deliver essential items to protect its warehouse workers. Amazon said the ruling made it impossible to operate and had already closed its French redistribution centers. We'll be following that closely. Um, shares of online pet supply giant Chewy are soaring as many people in America stockpile pet food and adopt more pets. Matt Egan has been talking to the CEO of Chewy. He joins us live now. So it turns out that in quarantine, people just, you know, want to curl up with a furry friend. They're adopting more cats, more dogs. What does that mean in terms of revenues for Chewy?
10: Well, Zane, you know, in a lot of ways, it feels like Chewy was made for a moment like this. It's benefiting from all of these trends that are converging at the same time. Forced online shopping, panic buying, and yes, rising pet ownership—that's why Chewy's stock has beaten the S and P 500 by about 60 percentage points so far this year. They're hiring up to 10,000 people, and so you know, I asked the Chewy CEO, Sumit Singh, whether or not they're still seeing strong demand more than a month after many Americans have been forced to stay at home. Here's what he said.
11: Millions and millions of customers are relying on us to fulfill that demand of uh, pet essentials during this time, and we're proud to do so. So demand you know, has remained at elevated levels as we had expected back when we issued the guidance for Q1. I, I think it's reasonable to expect that that will remain high up until the point that, you know, the economy really kind of reopens back up.
10: So, Zane, you know, it's not just new customers who either can't or won't go to pet stores during this pandemic. There's actually been a surge of new pets because many Americans have decided to adopt or foster dogs and or dogs and cats at this time. Um, so I asked the Chewy CEO about that trend. Here's what he said.
11: Pet adoption is highest during the holiday time frame. It's always been the case. And, you know, folks have more time uh they you know they they the spirit of bonding and camaraderie is greater during that time and so we're seeing the similar kind of patterns here it may not be out of happiness but folks do have time and they're craving companionship and so pet adoption has gone up uh new pets have gone up and, and we're seeing a similar proportion migrate to our platform so we're serving you know pet parents across their journey
10: So it really does seem as though Chewy is kind of in a sweet spot right now. I think the real challenge is whether or not it can meet expectations, both from Wall Street, which has driven Chewy's valuation up very sharply, but also from its customers who really needed to be there during this crisis. And if it can't meet those expectations of customers, it risks burning some bridges and perhaps losing customers to competition. That's the real challenge, Sam.
0: Yeah, we've just seen on, on our screen how much the share price has increased over the past month. So obviously their revenues are up. But what about their expenses at a time like this? Because naturally they're going to be spending more on hiring um, and also health and safety costs as well, which, you know, when, when it adds up, depending on how, mu- how long this lasts, this whole quarantine thing lasts, might not be cheap at all.
10: That's exactly right. Chewy has lost almost a billion dollars combined over the last three fiscal years. It's never been profitable. And I asked the CEO, I said, do you think given all of this demand, you're going to finally be able to turn a profit? And, And he wouldn't say that they will. He's not sure. And I think that's because of the cost issue that you're talking about. They are spending a lot of money on hiring. They're building two new warehouses one of them is going to be automated. And you mentioned all of these safety concerns as well. They're doing temperature checks. All of that will cost money. All of that will eat into the bottom line. So yes, sales are up. Demand is up. Uh, but the profit so far has been elusive.
0: Right. Matt Egan, Life for us there. Thank you so much. And finally, before I leave you, take a listen to this beautiful voice.
10: Imagine
2: all the people
0: If that doesn't warm your heart, (laughs) I have no words. That was the very lovely voice of Dr. Elvis Francois, a fifth-year orthopedic resident at the Mayo Clinic in uh, the American state of Minnesota. Videos of him singing have attracted millions of views on his Instagram page. He's so talented. Um, And he uses his voice to spread positivity course, something that we all need right now. That is it for the show. Thank you so much, so much for watching. Wherever you are, please be safe. And well, I'm Zane Asher. Julia's actually back on Monday. I wish you a safe and happy weekend. All the best.